and I think there's a parallel there in Sistema as well. It's like sometimes we don't try or we stick to what we already know because it's like, well, if we try something risky, right? If we try and learn something new and risky that's outside of the comfort zone and we fail, then we'll feel worse about ourselves for failing and getting pinned. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema and this is Sistema for Life. Howie, top of the morning to you. And to you too, Glenn. How are you? So good to see you. How, how's things been for you? Stressful. Yeah? Not so, not so easy lately. Not so easy. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's great, because today we're going to talk about happiness. So, <laughs> so, so we're, we're either going to learn something that's yeah. going to help us, or we're just going to fake it. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And, and that's, that, I guess that's one path to happiness, right? That some people in positive psychology say, if you just try really hard to generate happy thoughts, then it uh, manifests itself neurophysiologically in your brain, and then you become happy. And uh, I'm not sure how much I go along with that, but um, we can come yeah. to that a little bit later on. But, so to you, um, so what's kind of triggered this for me is both um, a couple of things that I've been reading, that um, and specifically uh, Yuval Noah Harari's *Sapiens*, like the history of the whole human race, um, and it's this beautiful, wonderful book, and I highly recommend it to anybody. Um, looking at kind of the context of where we come from, um, all aspects of human history and culture and biology, and how that kind of comes together. Very, very wide reaching um, work, I think very, very important. But what's really interesting to me is that he sums up right at the end that historians typically look at human development or your human life through the lens of like, what did we achieve? What did we grow? Mm -hmm. And you know, like, uh, oh, we've definitely gone in steps from the agricultural revolution. You know, we went from being, you know, hunter gatherers having to chase things through the forest all day long to, um, you know, farmers who had apparently an easier life, but probably not. We just swapped time out in the forest for carrying heavy buckets of water instead for the most most part. And, um, and, and, and lots and, of new bacteria and viruses. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, it was kind of, so he sort of says it's a bit of a bum deal, a bit of a fraud, really. Um, and then the Industrial Revolution, where we swapped outdoor life and farming for, <laughs> for factories and timetables and living on the clock and all that kind of stuff. Um, but this is generally seen as like, a, and now the, you know, the technological revolution and the internet and the digital revolution and Lord knows what's coming next, you know, making ourselves into cyborgs probably um, but kind of historians tend to look at this as just like well generally the um, the value of life in their eyes has kind of increased you know we, we, we've grown and our lives have got easier in some ways and yet we seem to be very very stressed out and he and he points out that we rarely consider the point of view of like well are we any happier for all this right was a medieval peasant actually any happier than a hunter-gatherer living in Borneo, do you know what I mean, or something like that, or um, or did they trade off some of their happiness, like with this idea of security and staying put and not having to hunt for things, like, and and then again, like, are we any happier now? We might be happier than a medieval peasant, for example, but we might not be happier than a hunter-gatherer, or it might might be it might depend on your lifestyle and what's going on. So this this kind of key idea of happiness as a metric for human thriving, as opposed to GDP or you know, amount of hours that you spend working a day or things you have or something like that. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and where it ties into Sistema for me is right at the beginning, um, the very first interview I did for this podcast with Vladimir, um, he, he made, when I asked him what makes Sistema distinct, um, from other styles, he didn't say anything about like the locks and the throws or the philosophy in, in any kind of grander way. He said, the idea of the style is to remove tension. When you remove tension, you remove fear. And when you remove fear, you start to be more happy. That's it, right? And I mm -hmm. thought that was beautiful, very, very succinct. And, um, and Vladimir has also said that you, your goal in, in, as, a, as an instructor when you're teaching Sistema is to make sure that people leave 
happier and more relaxed than when they came in. If they learn some martial arts along the way, great. If they learn something <laughs> deep about themselves along the way, great. They don't have to, right? If they leave relaxed and happy, you've done your job and Sistema has done its job, kind of, right? Um, so I thought this was really kind of interesting. I'd like to uh, like explore different ideas um, a little bit about happiness and then sort of see how we think that ties in with Sistema. Does it compare? Does it contrast? Kind of those kinds of ideas. Let's do it. Cool, yeah. So, so how have you, or how do you attack happiness in your, in your work as a, as a wellness coach and somebody who's trying to get people towards kind of a, a more fulfilling life, uh, a more authentic life, one that they want to live? Does, is happiness a metric for you? Do, you? do you say to people, are you happier on this diet? Or do you just focus on um, other metrics first? Yeah, it's a very dangerous metric. Mm. It's like weight loss. Okay. Right, because when, whenever we, we choose a metric as our goal, yeah. We tend to get um, narrow focused on achieving that goal. So right. if, if weight loss is your goal, yeah. you can do all sorts of really dumb things yeah. that will successfully lose weight, but it won't make you healthier, it yeah. won't make you happier, it won't make you more at peace. Yeah. And I think chasing happiness is, is the same way because we, we can feel happy when we're playing a video game four mm. hours a day. Yeah. Right. Or when we're eating crap food, yeah. or when we're not grappling with someone who keeps putting us in, in painful elbow locks. Yeah. Right. And yet, there's, there's a lot of evidence that chasing happiness doesn't bring happiness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, and there's, I guess this, um, both in terms of psychology um, and in terms of kind of biology, it's, it, it seems like the more recent findings are kind of confirming what it was that a lot of old religions were kind of extolling and that, that you know acquiring things and becoming richer as a person you know with uh, material things and trying to get power and trying to get status and all of those kinds of things won't make you happy right um, that if you're looking for extrinsic environments and conditions to generate the the feeling of happiness within yourself, you, that search will be endless, right? You'll constantly be looking for the next doodad, the next thing that's going to make you happy, the next video game, the next fancy car, even the next relationship, right? This person, you know, my last marriage was crappy, the next one will make me happy, you know, that kind of stuff. And you see people going through serial divorces, right? Well, we, 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 we habituate so quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so all of those extrinsic conditions, you win the, even I think there's research on lottery winners, right? That shows that um, literally the joy of winning the lottery lasts on average six weeks, something like that right you can go from like i have nothing to like we i never have to work again and then six weeks later you're like oh really this moe chandon is not good yeah. <laughs> you're annoyed with the car and you have to get a tesla because the porsche is too slow i don't know all those kinds of things but um yeah we can make fun of it um and i think what most of the research shows on material things especially with money is that um there is a threshold so it's worth saying that if you're miserably poor and, you, and you're having trouble making ends meet and you're below the poverty line in america for example then um a bit more money will actually make you quantifiably happier, right? But I think there's a threshold, and I want to say it's around about 60 grand a year 60 or something. Or 70 60, 70 grand a year. Uh, above which no additional money makes you additionally happy, yeah. and maybe even starts to go in reverse, where you start to worry about the things that you have and trying to protect your investments and your possessions and things. Is that? Yeah, um, well, a, a business mentor of mine gave me a, a wonderful metaphor, which is that money mm. is like oxygen. Mm -hmm. right? If you don't have enough, yeah. it's kind of all you can think about. Yeah. But too much is not better. Yeah, nice. Yeah, too much actually becomes toxic in that case, right? Nice. So, yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, money is a toxin. That's it. But um, there's an interesting um, in Sapiens in the Yuval Noah Harari talks about money in there. He has a whole chapter on the history of money and how it started out just with. Um, 
trades and exchanges, like personal trade-offs, things like we do, right? We do trade-offs between, you know, body work and systema training and podcasting and, mm-hmm. you know, personal coaching. And I have lots of these little arrangements with my friends. I, I love um, service exchanges. I think they're great, right? They're a really natural way of doing things and you feel good about them, right? right. Not, not that we don't pay taxes on That's, them. Of course we pay <coughs> taxes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, uh, he, he points out that money came along as a solution to that problem. That if you have a service exchange and you're trying to, for example, you know, you need a pair of shoes and um, you know a cobbler who needs a haircut and you're a hairdresser, great, I'll give you haircuts, you make me shoes, done. But if you don't, uh, he doesn't need a haircut, then you have to find <laughs> you have to find something else that he's willing to trade for. So you have to find like a, a law, if he needs a lawyer, for example, right? And then you trade your hairdressing skills with the lawyer and then the lawyer trades and then the cobbler trades with the lawyer. And in the end, what you end up with is a thousand little reckoning tables and exchange rates for different types of services. Like one shoe equals an hour of my hairdressing equals all these kinds of things. And it's, and it's just untenable in the long term. So little cowrie shells or little scratches on cuneiform t- tablets and things came along as a way of saying like, okay, we'll agree on the independent value of this thing and then we'll make this money like a, the independent resource, right? This independent of the thing so we can ascribe value to things, right? Yeah, so money, money started as memory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a way of remembering those things. And there's nothing, the point that he makes is that there's nothing intrinsically evil about that and there's nothing that intrinsically should make you unhappy at all. So this whole idea that money is the root of all evil it's kind of wrong. It's not. But maybe it's the, the pursuit of money or the worship of money to the exclusion of other things, right? When you start to care more about that, using money in the same way that somebody might use sugary food or like a, an addictive video game as a balm to cover up other things that they're nervous and anxious and angry about, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe that's the evil. It's that, it's that attitude towards it, the, the idea that money is happiness. It's not right? But money doesn't cause evil things or unhappiness. It's just a thing, right? It's just something that's, that we've created to go between well, things. I, I have lots of ideas about this that are probably not related to, to okay. happiness. So maybe we should, we should start a political science podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next one could be on politics and we'll lose half of our podcast viewers probably. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. But, yeah. um, I, mean, I think there are, I mean, just to quickly say, I think there are things about the way we do money yeah. that are harmful, like yeah. um, positive interest. Yeah. Right. There's almost no no other substance on the planet that just gets more and more valuable, yeah. regardless of how old it is. Or yeah. Right. And then also that money is a is not, it's not only the great equalizer; mm. it's the great commodity. Sure. So that now every everything, all the uniqueness of the world, all the variation. Yeah. You know, getting a haircut from you is different from getting a haircut from Bob down the road. Yeah. And now it's all been commodified into mm. into a single thing. Yeah. So I think there are there are sort of intrinsic mm. properties of at least the way this civilization has characterized money yeah. that that tend to um, diminish us. Mm. Um, I mean, I think you know, historically one of the causes of the rise of Hitler was the hyperinflation sure. in Germany, where people you know the picture of the Kaiser yeah. is on the bill and they're they're carrying. Um, wheelbarrows to buy a loaf of bread and they feel personally diminished by the diminishment of the currency. Yeah, yeah. But isn't that more about the management of it and, the, and like the, the the government trying to control the currency and what it's worth? And then that's where the free market arguments come in saying, you know, if you leave people their own devices, then they just use money as a free trade thing and then everybody's fine. It's only when somebody at the top intervenes and sets the arbitrary value of money or starts printing more out of nowhere that you get those kinds of problems. You know, when well, the government think, tries to control it from the top, that's when it I gets think, in. Yeah, the, the, you know, the specific economic problems yeah. we can argue about, but the fact that people 
looked at these pieces of paper and yeah. saw their own self-worth reflected yeah. in them, yeah. I think is independent of... Yeah, and still do now. Even and now it's mostly not pieces of paper, right? It's just digits and just, just ones and zeros, like in a, on a binary bank balance and you check it and you, you measure your net worth. Literally, that's yeah. the phrase, right? Like, what's my net worth? I'd never even heard of this before I moved to America, honestly. I hadn't, and maybe if I'd moved in bigger business circles in Britain, I would have been more concerned with it, but I just didn't, right? I made it to the age you of like 30. the Saatchis? What's that? You didn't know the Saatchis? Not on a personal level, no. Okay. I have met the Queen, but I think her net worth far so far off the scale that I didn't... And, and it's considered gauche to talk about it in, yeah. the, in the palace. <laughs> but, you know, um, but I think this whole idea that you, you measure... And I, and I did it. I think I read a whole bunch of books about, you know, economics and finance. And I'm like, I really should do better with the budgeting and stuff like that now I live here. So I made it to age 32 without actually knowing what my net worth was. And then after moving to America, calculated it and figured out it was about $3,000. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> is that it? If I'm gone, there's three, you know, how they gets half a month's rent or something, you know, like <laughs> going through that way. But, um, and then I started tracking it when I realized that, you know, the balance between debts that you've got and things that you've got coming in and stuff that you own and buying a house and all that kind of stuff and, and gradually saw it kind of increase. But then I'm like, this is this feels weird to be measuring your net worth in terms of money, right? I understand the value of it in budgeting and just trying to make sure you're making good financial decisions. But it felt kind of strange to be considering that as a, as a metric for measuring what I'm doing. And I didn't relate that to my happiness. I just, but there was some measure of achievement in there. Do you know what I mean? Not necessarily status, but like, well, I should be doing, I don't need to be doing better than X person or Elon Musk or something like that, right? I don't need to be in those kinds of things. But I felt like, well, I needed to be okay. I needed to have like a, a decent net worth. Yeah, and it didn't like feel like I did. And that made me feel like less than I should be at that age. You well, know? it's like when you take your kids to the doctor and, and they, mm. you, they get, um, you know, they're on the bell curve for like height and weight or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Like, it's not that you want, you want him to be better than Timmy, but yeah. you want him to be kind of in the, in the, in the okay the range. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> above average. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I see the same thing when, with people who are overweight, who want to lose weight, and they get on a scale every morning. Yeah. The scale is a really, really useful feedback mechanism. Mm. Like, I don't recommend that people stop looking for feedback. Mm. You know, my friend uh, Glenn Livingston says it's like, you know, um, driving and deciding I'm not going to look out the, the, the front windshield because, yeah. uh, you know, that, that doesn't, it doesn't define me as a person, whether I'm yeah. within, within the yellow lines. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, my weight doesn't define me and my income doesn't define me. Yeah. So I think the, the trick is to have relationships with these numbers that are purely functional and not mm. identity based. Gotcha. Yeah. So we've established that money doesn't make you happy. Um, definitely. Right. There's a minimum threshold above um, below which it, you could be made miserable because you don't have an, enough money to get the things that bring enough safety and security and other stuff that, that enable like the absence of fear and anxiety in a lot of ways. Right. But those needs basically met. Um, a lot more money doesn't make you a lot happier. And a lot of research bears that out pretty much. People don't want to hear it because they're like, well, you know, yeah, I could be happier if I make more money or if I grow more and that kind of stuff. But it's generally true. So in the absence of money, sometimes we swap those out for not the actual cash, right? But they're like, well, I'll buy the thing that makes me happier, like whether it's the new TV or the new car, um, or even kind of the more, the more modern trendy version is like, I don't buy things, I buy experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not the TV or it's not the car or the house that's going to make me happy. I'll live in a tiny house and I'll get like very, very few things and I'll minimize my life and then I'll travel Peru and that will make me happy. That experience will make me happy. But I don't necessarily think that traveling to Japan or, or you know, Africa or somewhere else intrinsically will make you happy. The, the experience might change your perspective, 
which um, might change how you feel about things, which as a run-on uh, effect might help you to be happier, right? Might, might help you be more grateful, for example, for the things that you do have. If you visit a poorer country, you might be like, oh, what am I even complaining about, right? And I know plenty of people that have been to India and come back and been changed in that way. Like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I, was, you know? I was changed for like three whole weeks once by an experience like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it's, it's, like you say, it's the same kind of thing, though. You come back into an affluent lifestyle or relatively affluent lifestyle, and then you start yeah. to take those things for granted again and yeah. measure yourself by a different yardstick. And one of the happiness studies around money was mm. people were asked, would you rather have $100,000 and live in a neighborhood where the average income was 200000 mm. or would you rather have 50000 and live in a neighborhood where the average income was 25000 mm. And most people picked the 50000 They would rather have half as much money but mm. be twice as rich as their neighbors. Wow. I'm not even sure what that says. That's <laughs> well, that, that, that it's, a, it's about comparison. Yeah, okay, yeah. Senior Sistema Instructor Emmanuel Manolakakis will be coming to Durham, North Carolina the weekend of January the 26th and 27th, 2019 for a two-day in-depth look at deep Sistema principles entitled Sistema Explorations Part 1. This seminar is currently priced at $240 for both days or $150 for one day only. Certified Sistema Instructors receive an additional 10% discount. The seminar is now close to sold out with less than 10 spots remaining. So don't delay, register online today at ncsistema.com events. And if you heard our podcast episode with Vali Majd of Roots Dojo British Columbia, you may have been intrigued by the idea of their intensive Sistema internships. Well, Roots Dojo is now taking applicants for the winter intensive at their secluded location on Denman Island, British Columbia. This is a unique opportunity to train twice a day, five days a week, under the watchful eye of Vali and his team. You can join for the full three months or just drop in for a week. For more info, check www.rootsdojo.com. Many thanks. So it's not material things. And I think most of us kind of accept this as well. We, we accept the intellectually, at yeah. least the idea that the money and the things aren't going to make us happy, right? We, we act as if they're not, but in order to get short-term bursts of dopamine, right? We get the things anyway so that we can feel a little bit happier for a short time. But we understand that's not going to give us lasting happiness. And the, you know, the, the ancient religions all told us you can't take it with you, right? Yeah. It's not going to be well, what's going to give you the thing. But the experiences and the idea of like, if you change your environment, if you change your work, for example, if you change your job and you have a better boss and you have better workmates and things like that, that, that will make you happier. That's something that people cling on to a lot, I think. And I don't think that's necessarily true either. I think you could be perfectly miserable in a really good job situation as well, right? I'm not saying, and again, maybe there's the equivalent of the money thing. There's, there's, a, there's a, a stress threshold in certain jobs, right? You're like, I just can't be happy as a bomb disposal guy, right? right. <laughs> like, it might be that you're just not cut out for it or you, you, know, you hate doing civil engineering and groundwork or something right. like that and crawling down you know, drains well, or wherever it's gonna be. And you'd be like, well, I just can't be happy in this, in this job in this way. Um, or you know, on the flip side, somebody might be a stockbroker and they might be making loads and loads of money and all that kind of stuff, but they might be miserable in that job just because of what it brings them. They might be way, way happier as a farmer or as like something else, right? Um, but I don't think necessarily, again, changing the job and waiting for the external conditions to create the feeling of happiness in you is a recipe for it either. I don't think that's, there's no well, guarantee that's gonna happen. I'll give you an interesting uh, example. I did a podcast yesterday mm. um, with a woman who started a LinkedIn group called uh, Vegans, Vegan Leaders in Corporate Management. Hmm. Okay. And what was interesting was that these are people who are high up in big companies, a lot of Fortune 500, a lot of the top consulting firms and Microsoft and Facebook. Yeah. And a lot of these people were on the verge of leaving hmm. because they felt 
especially if they work for a company like Walmart okay. or Aramark or something where, where not the non-vegan mission of the company was, you know, Walmart, mm -hmm. how many yeah. animals, right. you know, are consumed by Walmart customers every year. Sure. And yeah. they just felt like, I can't continue doing this. There's like a dissonance between their own values and the place right. where they work. Yep. And then after sort of joining the group and then seeing, oh, well, now, you know, the point of the group is to empower them mm. to make changes in these companies mm. that are then going to you know ripple out and make changes in the world like instead of all these people leaving and forming a commune in burlington vermont mm. you know and that's okay now we can be happy they a lot of them found happiness and meaning mm. in the job in the positions they were in now saying i'm here for a reason okay yeah and so it was it, was, it wasn't that they had to change jobs which yeah. is what a lot of them thought it was they had to change their relationship their attitude towards the job or their, their perception of what they were doing within that role. Well, yeah, so yeah. you know, the, the externals play a role, but I think it's the internals. It's how we, it's our relationship yeah. to the externals that determines our happiness. Yeah, so um, so that kind of, that brings us on from like the first, kind of, so the first insight there is like happiness is pretty much independent of external conditions, right? Um, that it's more dependent on internal conditions, right? A kind of sense in, in how you feel about things, right? Um, and this is kind of beloved of, New Age philosophies, right? This idea that um, the happiness is found within, so you should search within and try and create and maintain the feeling of happiness within yourself. Only then will you be happy, right? Um, and I think this is quite interesting because I see a lot of this, you know, there's so many of these kind of, um, uh, kind of there's like uh, motivational speakers that extol this, there's um, kind of like, New Agey philosophers that write reams and reams of books about this, you know, about um, just living in the present and generating happiness within yourself and positive psychology and all of those things. Um, but I, I know plenty of people that stick to those maxims and still don't seem to be particularly happy. Do you know what I mean? It's like they're, so they're chasing a different kind of thing, which is like they're chasing the feeling of happiness inside. Right. Instead of trying to create chasing the external conditions that are going to create internal happiness. Now they're like, oh, well, external things can't make me happy. I just have to be happy. And then when they're not, they beat themselves up. Right. When they're not feeling that happiness, they're like, why aren't I happy? Right. It's, it's, I still, should, it's yeah. still a possession. Yeah. Yeah. It's something they want to possess and maintain and, and, and temporarily if they feel happy um, and when it goes away, it's fleeting. They, they want to cling to it they, and they want to cling to that state. Um, or they, or if, if they're not feeling particularly happy, they're like, oh, I'm content, but I could be happier here, right? There's more that I could do on the inside. Um, and I've bumped up against this a little bit, I think, myself as well. Um, even within the philosophy of Sistema, this whole idea that, you know, you should be able to calm yourself and you should be able to control your emotions. I, I, sometimes I can beat myself up for getting angry and getting irritable. Um, I realize now, um, or I have beat myself up about this, I realize now that that's kind of daft because Sistema doesn't say that you should never have any emotions and you should never feel these things or not even that you should chase the happy state and try and maintain the happy state. The system says that you're going to feel emotions and you need to learn to work in spite of them, right? Um, or learn to work more neutrally or more dispassionately, kind right. of be at peace within yourself right. in a sense. And, 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 and your, your amygdala hijacks, your sure. you know, temper tantrums and blow-ups yeah. are the same as somebody stronger than you pinning you mm. while grappling. Sure, right? yeah. It's like, okay, here's a, here's a place for me to work. Yeah. You know, thank you, life, for showing me my weaknesses. Yeah, exactly. So that comes in. And so, and this is something also that um, Harari talks about in the Sapiens book. He sort of says that the, the additional insight that's offered by, um, by Buddhism, and now actually that's being backed up by um, a lot of neuroscience, is that not only is happiness independent of the external conditions, it's also independent of your inner feelings. And if you give too much significance to your inner feelings, then you start to crave those 
right? And then and that becomes a thing like, why aren't I feeling happy? Well, I should be happier, right? And you can't get happy in, in that kind of sense. And the, the, the Buddhist kind of approach to that is that you should understand that the pursuit of those feelings and the pursuit of the things, all of that is, is, the, root of the, part, is the path to suffering, right? Giving too much significance and th- feeling like you are your feelings, that's actually what's making you unhappy and not at peace. And what you should strive for is contentment, not the joy, not the, the up and downs and all that kind of stuff. And that, that, that's the only lasting kind of peace. And this is really interesting to me as a concept because I think it seems to really, even though it comes from a different background, like Systema is based in um, Orthodox Christianity, has a different kind of um, philosophy behind it at its base, right? Um, but it's evolved a lot as well, you know, in the practice of it and the, and the range of people that practice it. And clearly not everybody that practices an Orthodox Russian, um, you know, Russian Orthodox Church. Um, but I think there's some congruence here between this whole idea of of kind of kind of fuck feelings you know <laughs> you, know, you have feelings uh, but you don't have to pay all that much attention to them you just you realize that they're things that come in and come out again and the path to kind of staying peaceful and being able to stay human and make good decisions and make good movements and and make the right choices in conflicts whatever kinds of conflicts they are light in your ability to 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 see that the, the, the things come in and out and that you're weak and that you'll perceive those those feelings as as part of you and that you might chase more um, achievement and you might chase more happiness and you might chase more of a feeling of pleasure and you might want to push away the feelings of discomfort and the fear and anxiety and all that kind of stuff um, but what you're really striving for in a physical way with Sistema um, in a big way is is a pathway to getting your psyche to, to let go of all of that and just to to cultivate this kind of indomitable spirit that's in the middle that's just watching this whole thing being like yeah that's interesting there's a, there's a deep parallel there for me I think it's really interesting well and we talked a long time ago I think the first time you were on my podcast about mm. the uh, you know the, the the Japanese monk and the you know was like this sure. you know, I meditate and the woman was like sure that's easy for you to say that's that's the you know the goal of meditation is that you separate your mm. identity from feelings from personality from from yeah. anything beyond pure awareness yeah. but Sistema is sort of you know meditation while you're getting punched in the face right yeah yeah which is a, which is a very powerful way of going about it because it's, it's like pressure tested meditation it's like yeah. it's, you're not just sitting on a cushion doing it it's like you're sitting on a cushion getting kicked by three guys you know so, so it's a yeah it's a different kind of thing do, do you think for you are there any holes in that idea are there is there anything that you've bumped up against where um or, or is it is it so counterintuitive do people think yeah that's a nice idea but i kind of like my feelings you know I, I like feeling joy i like feeling you know the, yeah. the joy when it's, my kids play with me yeah. and i like feeling excitable yeah. and, I, and and in some way we don't want to strive for this neutral state because we like the up and down of life I like we like I that, th- yeah i don't think it's a neutral state hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's not a should either. Right? Okay. This is like the idea of the Buddhism or, or Sistema that they have been sort of battle tested in human mm. lives for, for uh, you know, millennia. Yeah. If you go back far enough, is like what works. Yeah. So if it works for you to yeah. be totally in your feelings... Hmm. And to feel, you know, to feel like, I mean, these are Russians, for God's right. sake, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. 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 Mm. Right? You know, and, and it's, you know, you can say, like, happiness is not, like, you know, like, one of their core values. Right. Right? Mm. Um, but it's about, like, what what works for you in the mm. same way like when I'm when I'm trying to strike mm. and my shoulder keeps coming up and I keep thinking I need to tense mm. and I keep doing the thing even though it's not bringing me the result I want at some mm. point I have the privilege mm. of making a different choice mm. 
So it's not that we don't want feelings. Hmm. It's that, you know, what works for me is when I can see the feeling and say, wow, this is a really powerful feeling that I have. Yeah. Right. Like I have anger hmm. is profoundly different from I am angry. Yeah. 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 Right? And so to say to uh, recognize it as an experience for experience. Our identity. Yeah. Hmm. And so it's hmm. not like, OK, well, I'm on this uh, Disney ride and because I want to be content, I'm not going to enjoy the ride. Right. Yeah. So, so what consistently makes you unhappy? There's a big blanket smashing question, I know, and that kind of stuff, right? But so for you, what do you feel like are the biggest causes of your unhappiness and suffering in life? Um, so I'm trying to think about it. What, at what level the cause is? Because I have a lot of financial stress okay, right now. So money is one for you as well. So yeah. I don't know. That's the question. I don't know if it's money. Yeah. Because is it the security that comes with money? Is it is it the worry that you won't be able to provide if you don't have enough financial resources? So it's tied in with I think the ability to provide for the family. It might be. I think it's more self-esteem, sort of okay. what you were talking about about net worth. Yeah. Like, what's wrong with me? Hmm. Like, why can't I? Why can't I master this thing? Hmm. You know, and, and um, that sounds familiar in a systemic context as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I don't want to, or like you know, all the self-doubts hmm. about like, am I? Is there something wrong with me fundamentally yeah. because, because this symptom keeps coming up? See, see that's an interesting one with, with money that, that resonates with me because I think for a lot of years, my aversion to trying to think about money or calculate my net worth or something came a lot from the attitude my parents have towards money. Uh, they grew up pretty poor, actually, like in, um, you know, in a... In a big families that didn't have a lot of money growing up in, in um, London and in Southeast England, respectively. And, uh, and they just kind of, they don't look as money as the, as the route to happiness. They look at it as like, well, you know, y you need some money to get by. You've got to, you've got to be, um, you've got to be comfortable and you've got to make sure you've got some security going forwards, but you shouldn't stick to it and you shouldn't be miserly. And it's, it's one of the worst things in the world. Um, I think in England and Ireland generally as well, is to be considered like a skinflint or a miser mm. or be somebody who's so penny pinching on their budget um, that they know actually at, at exactly where every penny goes and they weigh up like the net amount of happy that they're spending on each thing. That's And they're so averse to that. My dad's so generous to a fault that I think I grew up with that attitude and it made me not want to think about trying to make too much money. And so I've got this thing where, um, or I've had this thing where I'm, maybe I'm pushing away the attempt to get too much money or accumulate too much wealth because I associate it with people who I don't want to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't look at like, uh, you know, Elon Musk or someone who's my hero or like, you know, Warren Buffett or something. Like if I was that guy, then I would be, you know, I'll be great and I'll be successful. I don't look at myself that way because I feel like if I was that guy, I'll probably develop a whole bunch of new problems and there's a aversion to it. But I also recognize that there's, this idea, there's a safety in saying, well, if I don't try, then I don't fail. And then I don't have to feel bad about myself for not having all that money, right? If it, but if I went all out to become like a stockbroker or I went all out mm -hmm. to make a what, and then I failed, um, and then the net result was I wanted all of this money and I didn't get it, then that would feel worse. And, and I think there's a parallel there in Systema as well. It's like sometimes we don't try or we stick to what we already well, know because it's like, well, if we try something risky, right? If we try and learn something new and risky that's outside the comfort zone and we fail, then we'll feel worse about ourselves for failing and getting pinned or punched yeah, where look, it's going to be. Look at what the risk know? is in both of those cases. The, yeah. the, the risk is our perception of ourselves. Yeah. 
right? I, I, I don't want to have this opinion of myself. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't want to disapprove of myself. Right. So to me, like, that's the answer to your question. Like, the thing mm. that makes me unhappy yeah. is when I disapprove of myself. Yeah. And gotcha. so, you know, which can be based on some sort of, you know, this, this sort of crazy mind game we play around money, mm. or it can be, I was just mean to someone. Yeah. You know, a, a, a thoughtless phrase slipped out and I hurt their feelings and mm. it's really hard to take that back. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, you know, what makes me unhappy is when I don't live up to my standards. Up to your own expectations. Yeah. yeah. And, and so wh whether my expectations are true and good or yeah. crazy, mm. I think it's the same, uh, you know, it's the same gap. Yeah. That is the sort of the core of the things that make me unhappy. Yeah, and there's a lot of research in that as well, that it's, it's more about your expectations of where you want to be. Like you were saying about the person living in the neighborhood, right? Um, if they're twice as rich as the other person, you don't expect to be even richer and you're quite happy with where you are, maybe. Um, that it's the gap between what you expected to happen and what's actually happening that can make you unhappy, right? Or make you feel like a deficit of happiness. And I think that for me, so the thing that makes me most unhappy is if my kids are sick. Right. Um, so for the past few weeks, there's been this plague of flu-like things going through the Triangle in North Carolina, and the kids have been sick on and off. And you know, my wife works in a school, so they're just little vectors of disease, swapping diseases all day long, and they bring them home and swap them around and everything like that. Um, so when the kids are happy and healthy, and I see them bouncing around and climbing and training with them and stuff like that, I'm overjoyed. Right. When they're sick and they're miserable and they're feverish and um, I'm miserable, right? It, I, I can't be happy when the kids are sick. It's well, to, really, really yeah, hard for me. To, to paraphrase a yeah. novelist, Barbara Kingsolver, a parent is can only be as happy as their least happy child. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I've, I recognize that beyond giving them decent care, right, beyond taking them to the doctor to get good advice, getting medicines, you know, feeding them good food, trying to do all the things that I can do to keep them healthy. Beyond that power, there's not much else that I can do about them getting sick. I can't shield them from every virus in the world and roll them about in a bubble or something like that, right? Um, so it's going to happen. So there's, there needs to be this aspect of acceptance that, yeah, kids get diseases, kids get sick, and they get better again for the most part. Some of them don't, right? Some of them get sick and then get very, very sick. And if that happens, it can be in terrible territory. And for me, that's all tied up with a worry about the American healthcare system and God, sure. I'll be bankrupt if my kid got really sick, right? And all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but I think in there for me, so my understanding of why that makes me so unhappy um, is tied up with the idea that I, I find it hard not to project forwards um, especially, right, into the what-ifs, right? Mm -hmm. My science biology background goes into 50 different directions. Like some people, when their kids get sick, they search WebMD and look up 50 things, and sooner or later, you'll get to plague. Like every yeah. time, you know, so <laughs> no matter what it is, whatever symptom you'll get to. I, I go through the back catalog of things that I learned, you know, anatomy and physiology and genetics, and I'm like, oh, it could be this, could be lymphoma, could be blah, blah, blah. And I run away with that thing in my head, right? And it's difficult for me not to consider all those possibilities. And on the one hand, I feel like I'm being diligent in doing that. I'm just making sure that, not second guessing the doctors, but just thinking about the possibilities because I'm primarily responsible for their health and their survival, right, in that way. So in one way, I'm just doing my job as a parent, but in another way, that can just be kind of a thing itself, right, where you just get uh, anxious about the possibility of things that might or might not happen in the future, right? And that can kind of put you in this freezing pattern where you feel sorry for yourself and you're like, oh God, things just aren't getting better, the kid's not getting sick, and you feel yourself getting, uh, angry and irritable about the, the fact that your kid is sick, right? And it's like, well, if he's sick, the best that I can do is be right here, right now, help them out, right? And get through this and we'll get through it and then we'll move on to tomorrow. And if he's more sick tomorrow, I help him more tomorrow. If he's getting better, then great. But it's the expectation that your kid's 
will be happy, will be healthy all the time, right? That's that's the real problem. It's this expectation that everything is okay. And uh, again, in Sapiens, um, Harari talks about that it was only about 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago, that we started to expect all of our kids to make it past age five, right? And he gives the, uh, the example, I think it was like Edward the first, and the wife of Edward the first was pregnant, I think it was something like 18 times, um, and had three girls um, who all made it to like 40, 45 before they died or something like that. And it took her 18 times before she gave birth to Edward the second, the earth, right? She had to keep going until she had a male heir, right? That's the way it works. And in between, she had all these stillbirths. She had all these kids that made it to three or four or five that died. And that was fairly typical of the time. And there were royals and they had access to the best doctors and everything like that at the which, time. Which was right? part of the problem. Yeah, maybe. Because <laughs> that was why they're probably bleeding them for egg and stuff like that, you know? Um, but the point is that mostly because you considered that probably 25% of your kids at least wouldn't make it. If you had four kids, you didn't expect all of them to make it past six years old, right? And that was up right up until about 100, 150 years ago. But now we, we expect all of our kids to make it. And with some good reason, because advances in technology and you know, like child nutrition and a bunch of other things as well have really, really changed child mortality in a really, really big way. And, and now it's only like one in a thousand kids that doesn't make it past five years old or something like that. That's, that's about the odds like in a modern developed country um, with access to medicine, healthcare and all that kind of stuff, right? So we're like, well, the odds are all of our kids should survive, right? So we have that expectation. And so any suggestion that that's not gonna happen, that our kids might be in that outlier bracket that had the terrible things is terrifying to us now in a way that probably wouldn't have been to our great grandparents who would have been like, yeah, we got spare kids. <laughs> we can have another one. You know, it's like, you know, they were attached and of course they loved their children, but they didn't necessarily have that expectation that all of them would be healthy for life. You know what I mean? It's like, and so that, that distance between what, um, what we expect now in modern life and what's coming down the pipe, um, with the expectation of continued growth and wealth and stability, the expectation of continued health, the expectation right, well, that everything's gonna stay stable, that the political environment's gonna be okay, that we're not <laughs> gonna be at war, that nobody in my neighborhood's gonna burgle me. You know, we, we sit in this little comfort bubble and then and we're unhappy if that's disturbed, right? And right. I think there's, Systema helps us to get around that as well, right? It helps us to be like accepting of the fact that that comfort bubble could be disturbed at any time. Right. You could be mugged and attacked and assaulted, you you could get sick. You could use a, lose the use of a leg through injury or illness and still have to defend yourself, right? All of these kinds of things. And um, well, I think it's good training for it, but it's, it's to integrate it into life, that's the, that's the key, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as a historian, I realize how insane the last 50 years have been mm. for people like us who are, mm. you know, in a, you know, middle class and upper in a stable society yeah. like we didn't have to go fight the wars sure. right we didn't have to you know we could say no to iraq and afghanistan sure. and hmm. like there was this, this this sort of crazy period but when you look at history yeah this is a real anomaly oh it's an unprecedented piece yeah and so mm-hmm. to you know to to look and see oh well may, you know maybe we see the resurgence of uh, of nationalism of fascism around yeah. the globe yeah um like oh my god this, this could never happen hmm. like you know especially me being jewish and, sure. and knowing jewish history it's like yeah. well this has been a good run but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. it's time to get liquid again and right. find another country right yeah it's like you know it's like the more the it's, it's about base rate mm. right yeah. at, a certain, at a certain if you if you have the right an accurate base rate yeah you can be you can grieve hmm. for things that happen but you don't feel affronted and you don't feel like your entitlement has been taken away yeah. if something bad happens. Yeah. Yeah. So so do you feel like there's some additional value in in using Systema for this purpose of inoculating ourselves against 
the slings and arrows of fortune and, and, and the idea that probably crappy stuff is coming down the pipe um, and it's going to happen and we should experience some discomfort all the time in our, in our bodies, right? And in our minds and, and feel those neurotransmitters coursing around in our brains and experience those sensations of discomfort and unhappiness and worry and feeling sorry for yourself and all of those kinds of things on purpose as a way of kind of training your nervous system for the inevitable parts of that that are coming down, the inevitable you know, truth of the fact that our relatives will get ill and die one day, that our kids will probably get sick here and there, that um, you know, we'll probably lose a job and have to move at some point, right? There's gonna be traumas, there's gonna be kind of things that we don't want to happen. Um, is there additional intrinsic value in Sistema training that in the body versus meditating on the idea of it? or just thinking about it really, really hard and trying to contextualize it intellectually? I think it may be different for different people, but for, for mm. me, the body is the only way I ever learned anything reliably. Mm. And when you, think, you use the word trauma, yeah. I think actually I would use the word, you know, shitty things. Yeah. And we decide, you know, something that's um, traumatic to one person is not gonna be traumatic to another person, Yeah. right? So you walked away from a car crash a month or mm. two ago, Yeah. right? If that had happened to me or someone else, mm. right? I might be having PTSD. I might sure. not be able to get into a car, Yeah. right? Yeah. So, and, and that's not a function of how we think about it. Yeah, true, yeah. That's, that's, a, a, that's a function of how the body works. Yeah. So I think if we, if we, you know, maybe there's someone who meditates so deeply and profoundly mm. that they can override biology, but ultimately yeah. we're meat bags. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, and we're going to respond based on the, the laws of meat bag. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I th so I think to round this up, I'd like to switch to a different bit of advice, not from Vladimir, but from Emmanuel Manolakakis, who's coming down here shortly. So we're looking forward to having him for a seminar. Um, and he did a seminar a while back in uh, Roanoke, hosted by my good friend Lloyd Robrecht up there at Roanoke, Virginia. Um, and the whole idea of this seminar was not necessarily to teach you new movements or techniques or new principles in Sistema. It was just to kind of make you realize that it's, that it's everywhere throughout your entire life. And that if you're only focusing on it while you're in the Sistema training dojo, you know, and you, um, while you're fighting, and maybe a little bit when you're out walking or running or something like that, you're still missing out on so many other avenues in which it could benefit you. And what Manny recommended was that you literally sit down with a piece of paper and you write out all the things that are important to you, right? Your family, your spouse, your, your, your relationship, your sex life, your financial outlook, right? And your, your job, how happy you are in your job, your work-life balance, right? And whatever it is that makes you your hobbies, not other hobbies you might have. For him, it was like archery and stuff like that. For, for some other people, it might be fencing, it might be ultimate frisbee, right? It, it, it might be anything. Um, but then to sort of say, all right, what if any influence or benefit could the, the training method of Sistema have on those aspects of my life, right? Um, and you can go across the board on those. And of course you can improve your swimming and your ultimate Frisbee and your running and your archery through doing Sistema. But that's kind of the low hanging fruit, right? That's the physical stuff that relates very, very easily across the board, right? But I think the, where the real work is and where the real um, results in terms of making you feel more uh, at peace in your life and laying the groundwork that will enable happiness, let's say that, right? Not making you happier, but um, removing those tensions that allow you to be happy, as Vlad said, right? It just, it just happens automatically if you're less tense and less fearful, you become more happy over time, it's inevitable. Um, I think those aren't always immediately uh, visible. It's, it's not always easy to see those parallels, but if we actually try, if we actually sort of say, you know what, I'm going to try and bring the idea of expecting that 
you know, my kids aren't always going to be healthy or expecting that, you know, my spouse is not always going to be chirpy and happy and happy to see me when I come home from work. She's got her other things going, but she's got things going on in her own life. Um, or I'm not always going to be on the financial up and up. There's going to be swings and there's going to be periods of threat and all that kind of stuff. And just to expect those things and cultivate that within yourself and then sort of see what tactics you can apply um, from Sistema to deal with that, right? Um, and in financial hardship, maybe it's a stoic type philosophy where, you know, a couple of times a month you just eat rice and beans and nothing else for like a couple of days and wear really threadbare clothes or, or fast for an entire day and like buy nothing. Do you know what I mean? For an, and just spend time outdoors all weekend and then get into that kind of, is this the condition I so feared, right? Like, all right, if I lose everything, is this really that bad, right? I just have to eat bland food and wear not much and do you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't get to buy any new stuff. And then that can kind of inoculate you a little bit about the fear of losing your financial security. And then maybe the same thing with um, with relationships as well, you know, just uh, see if you can um, put more effort into into noticing what's going on with your partner, and and rather than kind of shove down or trying to fix the problems that are, are making him or her unhappy, right, all that kind of stuff. Instead, just trying to kind of just trying to look at it and try and understand it, and then trying to kind of see the arc of what's making them unhappy, and then just trying to provide a, a base for them so that they can be happier over time as well, right. you know? So, mm. Yeah, and the, I mean, the issue there for me, like, when, whenever mm. I'm like really screwing up in a relationship is because I'm trying to solve someone else's problem or I'm trying to change them, sure. right? Yeah. Where in, in Sistema, all yeah. I can be responsible for is myself. Right, right. Yeah. So I can't be responsible for someone else who's coming out too aggressive. Yeah, I can, you know, or I can't. I can in my mind, I'll be like, oh, what an asshole, or yeah, I don't want to work with them again. As opposed to what you always recommend, which is, yeah, how am I contributing? Yeah, and how can I contribute to changing it? Yeah. Right? So to, to like for me, happiness is ultimately a side effect of me being in my own power. Okay. Hmm. Right. So it's not something to chase. Yeah, it's it's something that it's a, a meta phenomenon mm. of of me pursuing the life that I'm supposed to pursue. Gotcha. And you know, how many times have I gone to a class? I'm like, ah, I don't really feel like being here, mm. and it's a really hard class, and I have some pains, and yeah. and at the end, I'm happy. Yeah, it wasn't because I said I'm I'm coming here to become happy. Yeah, right. Because this because this was it was me it was a set of meaningful experiences. Yeah, that I said okay, well this is this is why I exist. Right. right. I grew, uh, I challenged myself, hmm. I helped someone else maybe. Hmm. Like those are the things that, that lead to happiness. Right. So it resets your focus, it resets your sense of purpose and meaning, and, and it gives you practice of, of being slightly unhappy from time to time. <laughs> and then it, and going, moving through that and into a space where, where you feel powerful anyway. Right. Right. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's in a space of, of not requiring happiness to be mm. okay. Nice. That is beautifully put. And on that note, I think we'll cut it while we're ahead. <laughs> Thanks very much, man. And uh, well, I feel happier already. I don't know about you. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do it. Right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. Mm-hmm.